One of the, one of the lessons of history is just how fine a point history often pivots on. It's those, those seemingly individual decisions that get made, maybe in the heat of battle, maybe a turn of a phrase, a deft deployment of diplomacy at just the right moment that turns history on a dime. Our good buddy Andy Andrews has written and spoken about this extensively. He talks about the butterfly effect, the idea that, that a butterfly could flap its wings on one side of the world and push molecules of air to touch other molecules of air that, that would then move other molecules of air, ultimately resulting in a hurricane on the other side of the planet. It's something you've probably heard about. It's something that scientists have actually verified not only in terms of butterflies, but also in terms of people. I'll give you a couple of examples. Joshua Chamberlain was a college professor at Bowdoin College in Maine. When the Civil War broke out in the United States, he volunteered to serve in the Union Army. And by July of 1863, he was commanding troops, the 20th Maine, there at the Battle of Gettysburg. And Chamberlain, was at the top of this little, little hill known as Little Round Top when he realized that his forces were responsible for holding the line on the extreme left flank of the Union Army. And that if they surrendered, if they gave up that position, they would lose the advantage of that higher ground. And it was Chamberlain, as his men were running low on ammunition, who looked around and saw the rebel forces charging up the hill just on the spur of the moment, gave the command, fix bayonets and charge. And so these Union forces that just moments before were running out of ammunition, facing being overrun by the Confederates, rebel yelling their way up the hill, all of a sudden charged and began taking prisoners of war over a hundred and turned the tide of that battle, which turned the tide of the Civil War, and by the grace of God, preserved the Union that is the United States of America. Now, it's not always military where these pivot points happen. Also, in the 1860s, there was a, a child born into Missouri. Missouri, which at the time was a slave state, this child was born a slave. His mother gave him the name George Washington. And George Washington grew up, but early in his life as an infant, he was kidnapped by Quantrill's raiders in Missouri and his mother, his sister, and he were kidnapped and sold into slavery in Arkansas. And a guy by the name of John Bentley was hired to go and find this mother and her two children. And when Bentley finally tracked them down, the mother and the daughter were unaccounted for, probably lost, but he was able to secure the return of this little infant baby boy named George Washington. Bentley returned George to the couple in Missouri. And it was this couple in Missouri, Moses and Susan, who raised George, a white couple raising a black child. Susan devoted herself to the education of George and homeschooled him until he was old enough to make his way to a black school 10 miles away from their home. And it was Moses. It was Moses who raised this young man and 
gave the black orphan his own name, George Washington Carver, who grew up to become one of the greatest agricultural scholars and researchers the world has ever known and went on to advise Mahatma Gandhi and three United States presidents. These pivot points, what would have happened if Chamberlain had not said, fix bayonets, if John Bentley had not found the infant George Washington that we would come to know as George Washington Carver? Well, today, we're going to dissect the second most powerful pivot point in all of human history. The second most powerful pivot point. The first most powerful pivot point is, of course, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead that we celebrate next Sunday on Easter. The, the fact that the tomb of Jesus, who in fact died on a Roman cross and in fact rose from the grave, that that tomb is in fact empty today. The fact that his body has never been recovered. If you're somebody who's kicking the tires of the Christian faith, that's a good place to just start. Just begin with the fact that no one ever produced the body of Jesus after he rose from the dead. If it had been a hoax, if it had been a grand conspiracy, somebody would have folded. If you, if you think it's a conspiracy, think about the followers of Christ who were every one of them martyred for the fact that they believed, that they did life with him, and they saw him crucified, and over 500 eyewitnesses saw him risen from the dead. How do you, how do you argue that? It's, it's possible to be sure, but I just wanna, I wanna kinda lovingly push back on that and just kinda go, think about it. Think about the fact that his closest followers died as martyrs, believing that he had risen from the dead. I gotta tell you, if I was part of a conspiracy they would not have to get me to the point of death before I folded on the conspiracy. If they said, hey, we're gonna tie your arm behind your back and kind of crank it up. I'm like, I was just kidding. He didn't really rise from the dead. That was just a joke. That's just like something we were kind of seeing how far we could push it. My bad. <laughs> and yet these men, these men and women died for the fact that Jesus did rise from the dead. Now that's the number one greatest pivot point in all of history. You can't find another moment that has influenced the world more than that. But before the resurrection, before the risen Savior, there's Gethsemane. Gethsemane, when Jesus Christ finds himself at an absolute, at a literal crisis point, Gethsemane is the ultimate expression of the character and the nature of Christ. Over the last few weeks, we've been in this series called Crossroad, and we've been tracing the journey of Jesus to the cross, that last week of his life, not only for the historical narrative that the Bible gives us, but also for the patterns, for the paradigm that Jesus gives us to follow as we follow him. Because it's in this last week of his life that so much of who he is and what he still does today is captured and gives us the opportunity to understand that that's the goal. That 
He's the one that we chase. It is to be more like Christ. To follow Jesus does not mean that you're a nice person. Being nice is the cost of admission. That's, that's, just, that's just for openers. I love it. I don't know what it is. And I, don't, I haven't heard as many guys say this as I've heard women say this. How many times have you heard a woman or a, a young woman say about a guy that she's dating, but he's a nice guy? You know, when, when, he, when she kind of gets like, why are you dating him? I mean, he's, he's kind of rude. He's a little arrogant. Yeah, but he's, just, he's a nice guy. I just want to go, no, he's not. No, no, he's not. A nice guy is not rude. A nice guy is not arrogant. Ni- and by the way, if, if you're that guy, nice don't feed the bulldog. Nice by itself is, is fine as far as it goes. But at a certain point, you got to stand for something, male or female. I, I remember when I was a kid, I, I remember my pastor in Houston, Dr. Ed Young. He said, I did a funeral one time for a man, and they told me he had no enemies. And I thought, how tragic. Like, well, that didn't sound very pastorly. He said, if you don't have any enemies, you've never stood for anything in your life. I was 13, and I've never forgotten that. You have to stand for something. Jesus was kind, but he was so much more than sweet. And in Gethsemane, we, we have this, this incredible window into the heart and mind of Jesus. This incredible window into where he really was on that night. We, we have Gethsemane occurring right after the Last Supper, that, in that, that upper room. The Last Supper is where we saw Jesus, the Savior who serves. Jesus who was on his hands and knees washing feet, Jesus who served the Passover, the Seder meal to his closest followers. When we get to the cross, we have the Savior who suffers. But in Gethsemane, in Gethsemane, we have the Savior who surrenders to the will of the Father no matter what. The the Savior who surrenders and says, whatever you want, I will do. Now, I want to get there. Look at Mark chapter 14. In Mark chapter 14, the Bible gives us really an entire semester of theology in just a few short verses. We're we're not going to do a whole semester. We'll only be here for about three hours this morning. But I just like to see who's paying attention. I just like to kind of throw that out there a little bit. This is what Mark chapter 14 says. They went to the olive olive grove called Gethsemane. And Jesus said, sit here while I go and pray. But he took Peter, James, and John with him. And he became deeply troubled and distressed. Watch this. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. If I were writing the Bible, not inspired by the Holy Spirit as it was written, I would not have included that. I would not have said that the the hero, the protagonist of the whole thing, 
ever would have admitted that my soul is crushed to the point of death. But how grateful are we that we serve a Savior who is that transparent, who is that vulnerable, and willing to let us know that it's okay to get there. It's okay to be there. Now, Gethsemane is a word that, you know, if you're familiar at all with the story, you might have heard at some point along the way. And there's no passage of scripture that tells us this, but I do want to just point out to you how appropriate a place it was. The, the word Gethsemane means pressing oil. It, it, was a, it was a place where the olives were harvested and then crushed in order to produce olive oil. Olive oil that, you know, we all, we all now know as EVOO. It's, it's a staple of our cooking. It's, it's, it's a part of our lives. I remember when Julie and I first went on this, this crazy eating plan we did years ago called Whole30. How many of you have ever heard of Whole30? It is, it is a demonic ploy. <laughs> no bread, no sugar, no grains, no fun. And apparently you're supposed to eat a lot of greens and salads. Well, I will never forget the first time that we were on this demonic plan called Whole30. And Julie made a salad because that's what you do on Whole30. And I was like, okay, I'm all in. Here we go. And she made it with this really, really good, like, like high-end olive oil. EV, extra virgin olive oil, E-V-O-O, as we like to say in the culinary trade. <laughs> and then mixed it with some really fresh, very, very, not fresh, but really, really good balsamic vinegar. I put it in my mouth, and it was like <clears throat> an explosion of flavor. I didn't even care that it was salad. I was like, that's actually pretty good. It just popped. It was incredible. That's the power of olive oil. Good olive oil. Well, good olive oil's been around for a long time. And the only way you get olive oil is to crush the olive. The olive comes in one way and goes out another. It's in the crushing that the good stuff is extracted from the olive. Jesus enters the place of the oil pressing and says, my spirit, my soul is crushed to the point of death. If you live in this world long enough, you will get there. And that's okay. Jesus got there. I want you to think, I think sometimes we think, I shouldn't feel this way. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever thought to yourself, I shouldn't feel this way? A really good friend of mine calls that shoulding all over yourself. <laughs> he says, don't should all over yourself. Your feelings are your feelings. Just, just go with it. Jesus did. Now, he wasn't governed by his feelings, be very clear. But he acknowledged them. He said, this, this is where I am right now. He knew what awaited him on the cross. And I believe with everything I have that the spiritual, 
The spiritual suffering of the cross troubled Jesus more than the physical. Now, the physical was to be sure excruciating. That's what the word excruciating means. It comes from the word that gives us cross. But the spiritual suffering, to, to be completely alone, separated from God the Father because he became my sin. He became your sin. So what do we do? How, what, when we get to Gethsemane, how do we handle it? Number one, look at what Jesus did. Surround yourself with people you trust. Surround yourself with people you trust. Do you notice how Jesus went to Gethsemane with his disciples and the followers? He didn't go there alone. And before he really got to Gethsemane, he left eight of them at the bottom of the hill. And he only traveled on with Peter, James, and John. You see, there are only a very, very few people who are gonna be willing to go to Gethsemane with you. You've gotta be willing to have those people around you. You've gotta, you have to invest in people when you're not in Gethsemane in order to sustain and survive Gethsemane. And part of how you do that is with the people around you. Over the last three months, Julie and I have had the occasion to walk with some very close friends and, and others through some very, very trying, incredibly anguished times. And I gotta tell you, when we've been in the room with these people, when we've been praying for them, we don't have the words. There, there's no explanation you can give them. There's no Bible verse that you can quote that's gonna make it all go away and make them feel better. The thing that you do is just, you just be with them. You just, you just come alongside and go, I'm so sorry, and I love you, and I'm here. That, that's, that's the best thing you can do when somebody hurts. I would encourage you, do not start quoting scripture to them. If, unless you want to get punched in the mouth. Just, just tell them, I love you, and I'm sorry. Jesus took Peter, James, and John. He was surrounding himself with the people that he trusted the most. Look at what it says in verse 35 and 36. He went on a little farther and he fell to the ground. He prayed that if it were possible the awful hour awaiting him might pass by. Can we just pause there for a second? Just take a time out. Go ahead and take the verse down. Don't let them know where we're going next. I love that Jesus prayed this prayer. Understand the significance of the Son of God asking the Father to not have to go to the cross. That tells me if I want to ask God for something, it's okay. If I want to ask God, bless my life, take this away, take that away, that's okay. Again, so many times, I think especially if we've been, if we've been believers and followers of Christ for a long time, we, we stop ourselves from asking things. We, we judge not only our feelings, but we also judge our requests. Like, well, I'm not, I shouldn't ask that. That'd be selfish. Well, 
selfishness is in the heart of the beholder. It depends on what you want to do with what you're asking for. Jesus said, if there is any way, let this cup pass from it. And to, to the Jewish mindset, and, and Jesus was Jewish, the cup was traditionally representative of the wrath of God, that God would pour out his wrath. We, we know from the Battle Hymn of the Republic, the, the grapes of wrath, he's stomping out the grapes of wrath. It, it's the cup of his wrath. And Jesus knew that if he went to the cross and became my sin and he became your sin, then he would bring on himself the wrath of God. Now I know, I, listen, I'm not one of those preachers that loves to talk about the wrath of God. I, I, I don't like to talk about it. It's not something that I wake up going, I'm just gonna go scare the hell out of them. <laughs> but it's real. God gets angry. His anger is always righteous. His anger is always just. And it's always rooted in love, but it's real. I think that, that God understands better than we ever could that sin, our sin, our brokenness, jacks everything up. That's a theological term. And, and when he sees it jacked up, messed up, marred, twisted, distorted. He knows that we're settling for less than his best that we were created for, and so he gets angry at that. How many of you as parents, you know, when, when, your, kids, when your kids lied to you, you know, especially when they were younger and, the, and it was a little inconsequential lie that didn't really matter, but you were like, I'm sorry, what? First of all, I'm so much smarter than you. I know what game you're playing. You're playing out of the book I wrote. But, but there's another part of you as a parent that's like, come on. Your, your life's not gonna work well if you continue lying. Wake up. That's a, that's a wake up clap. That wasn't a spank. Necessarily. Per se. But I digress. If there's any way, let this cup pass from me. Verse 36, go ahead and bring it back up. Abba, Father, he cried out. Everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. There's the pivot point. This is number two in the history of the universe that the Son of God, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords said, not my will, but your will be done. Whew. It's important, too, that you understand what Jesus said when he said, Abba, Father. In the original language, Abba means Swedish dancing queen. <laughs> I'm just kidding, not really. I'm just saying if you were paying attention. In the original language, in the Aramaic language, Abba, Abba is a term, is a term for father. And, and it's, it's, the, it's, 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 that, it's that terminology that is like, it's like dad. Maybe in your family it was daddy, daddy. 
is what a child cries out when there's nobody else they can turn to, but they know they can go to their father. And it's that, it's that complete vulnerability of a child, that, that desire for the protection, for the provision of the father. Abba, Father. Abba. This is Jesus at his most vulnerable spiritually and emotionally and relationally. And it's Jesus showing us how to connect with the Heavenly Father. That we would be that, that open and that vulnerable. That we would be that connected and have that kind of intimacy where we would, we would be able to say with, without guilt and, and just freely, Abba, Father. And I'm in Gethsemane. My, my soul is crushed to the point of death. Please take this away. The Apostle Paul had a thorn in his side. We don't know if it was metaphorical or physical. Three different times he said, please take this away. Please take this away. Please take this away. And three different times the Lord told him, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. Surround yourself with people you trust, but ultimately, surrender your will to God's will. Surrender your will to God's will. Romans chapter 12. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Don't be like everybody else. Normal is overrated. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. You'll never be able to know how good God is until you surrender your will to God's good will. You have to come to that point. And man, Gethsemane is where it gets tough. Gethsemane is where you say, I'm going to trust you more than I trust myself. Gethsemane is where you say, this hurts so bad, I don't know if I can take another step, but I will trust you more than I trust me. And God, I will, I will surrender my will to your will because I know that you love me. I know that you are, you're like that good father. You're, you're there. I told you, I told you at the very beginning, there's a semester of theology in this passage. But theology only works if you put it into practice. Theology is only worth what we practice. And I, and I think for myself, I'm not going to put you on the hot, speed, hot spot. Surrendering my will to God's will is the hardest part of the whole deal. That, that, I'm just telling you, that's tough. But I will also tell you this. I've been following Christ now for a little more than a minute. It is always worth it. There's not one time, not one time in 54 years on this earth or 47 years since I committed my life to Christ that I have surrendered my will to God's will 
and been disappointed. Not once. There's not one time that I went, God, I wish I just hadn't done that. I had a better idea than God. Not once. Every single time, it works better than what I had in mind. That's what Jesus did here. This is still Gethsemane, so it's serious, but I love that the Bible included what happens next. Look at verse 37. Then he returned and found the disciples asleep. <laughs> he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation, for the spirit is willing but the body is weak. This happened three times in Gethsemane. Jesus would go off and, and he would pray. Luke, the, the physician, Luke tells us that Jesus prayed and was so distraught in this moment that he, he sweat blood out of his brow. It, it's, a, it's actually a biological, physiological response to stress. It's called hematohydrosis. And yet, when he would come back to where the disciples were, they were asleep. When it's all said and done, you sustain yourself with God. That's it. Yes, we surround ourselves with people we trust. We lean into them when we hurt, when we're in Gethsemane. We absolutely surrender our will to God's will. Not my will, but your will be done. But understand, there will be Gethsemane moments where it is only you and God. That's, that's just how it is. But it's in those Gethsemane moments that are only you and God. When you choose to sustain yourself with God, with the presence of God, the power of God, the peace of God, it's in those moments that you sustain yourself with God that you're gonna discover Gethsemane moments create moments of pure gold where you experience God in ways that you never experience Him in victory that you never experience him in blessing, that you never experience him. Now trust me when I tell you, you don't need to go looking for Gethsemane moments. Gethsemane will happen. Gethsemane will show up. But man, when it does, Jesus shows us how to weather it. Jesus shows us how to get through Gethsemane, because I want you to know, just spoiler alert, I wanna make sure everybody's listening. Jesus didn't stay in Gethsemane. Gethsemane is not the end of the story. Gethsemane is not where it ended, but Jesus went through it. And sometimes the only way to do it is to go through it. These Gethsemane moments are pivot points I wanna ask you to bow your heads for just a brief moment.
And I want to, in your mind's eyes, your eyes are closed. I want to put in your mind's eye a pivot point. You, you think, of, think of like a, um, remember when you were maybe in seventh grade and you learned about tools and simple, simple physics and you think about a simple lever. It's like a seesaw kind of. Well, the, where the seesaw hinges, that's a, that's a fulcrum. That's a pivot point. And for the follower of Christ, the pivot point is that moment that you step over the line of faith and transfer the force of your life into the hands of Christ and allow him to leverage everything that has ever happened or ever will happen for his glory and your good. Some of us in this room, some of us watching online, we can, we can point to that moment and that, that pivot point in our lives and we know when it happened. But if you're here today and you're not sure, or maybe you know that that pivot hasn't occurred yet, why not right now? Why not pivot into the arms of the Abba Father, the one who loved you enough to create you, the one, this same Jesus who loved you enough to go to the cross in your place. Pivot into a relationship with him. Just where you are, pray silently. Just something like this. Just talk to him. Just say, from your heart to his, silently, Jesus, I need you. I confess my sin to you, all of it, holding nothing back in order to receive your truth, your grace, your forgiveness. And Jesus, in exchange for your life, I will give you mine. I will follow you. Lord, from this moment forward, not my will, but your will be done. Lord, I pray this prayer in your name. For just a moment, I want to ask you to remain with your heads bowed. If you just prayed that prayer, this is your pivot point. The biggest, the greatest, the most significant pivot that you will ever make. And so as a church, it's our privilege, it's our responsibility to help with what's next because this is just a beginning. In just a minute, we'll tell you kind of how to begin that process. But right now, I want to just ask you if you would raise your hand. If that was your prayer and you meant it for the first time in your life, just lift your hand and hold it up high over your head for a second. And know that as a church, 
our prayer, our, our greatest desire is to be a family of faith with you, to grow with you, to learn from you, maybe to help along the way. And our family tradition around here is as you put your hands down, we're gonna put our hands together and tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.